Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Eric Gelman, who's currently an Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Eric's research focuses on working class and urban life, visual culture, and comparative social movements in modern America. We're going to be talking about his new book, Troublemakers, Chicago Freedom Struggles Through the Lens of Art Shea, which was recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Eric's fascinating text fuses photography and history to demonstrate how racial and economic inequality gave rise to a decades-long struggle for justice in one of America's major cities, and to ask, what does democracy look like, and when should we use trouble to pursue it? Hi Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks for asking. I'm really looking forward to, to getting into this book, there's so much going on, I mean this two decades after the end of World War II. So to start off with, who was Art Shea and why is his photography so important? Sure. So Art Shea was a photographer of 20th century, largely U.S. history. He was born in the Bronx to a Jewish family, grew up during the Depression years there, volunteered for service in the Second World War. And after he came back from the war, he did a stint with Life magazine as a journalist. And um, in the process of doing that, that stint with Life magazine, got to work and got paired with some of the greatest Life magazine photographers, many of whom were in the FSA, Farm Security Administration, photography project previous to the war. And got a real interest in developing his photography further. So he moved to Chicago in the late 1940s, quit his job with Life magazine, and became this new kind of photographer called a freelance photographer. It was such a new term that they actually used two words for it, free and lance, rather than today, you know, freelancer. And as a result of that, he, he for decades, took photographs for dozens of major magazines, books, periodicals, as well as took photographs for himself. So Arche is mostly famous as a photographer for pictures in uh, Life magazine, Sports Illustrated, other major journals of the era, pictures of celebrities, pictures of sports stars, etc. This book, though, is unusual in that it looks at a body of work that of Art Shays that I didn't know exist, and I think the larger public didn't know exist, which is his street photography in Chicago from roughly the late 1940s all the way up to 1970. And you mentioned in, in the acknowledgments that the book came about by accident. So could you say a little bit about how the project developed, um, what your own relationship with, with Art Shea was? Sure, yeah. So. The uh, book came out, you know, 
Roosevelt University, where I was working at the time as a history professor, is a really unique academic institution in that it's in downtown Chicago. It features lots of first-generation students and lots of really diverse, interesting intellectual types, both formal and informal. And, you know, that's going all the way back to the 1940s in Chicago as this unique educational urban space. And so through a connection, uh, I got to have lunch with Art Shea and his assistant, Erica DeGlopper. And that would have been back in probably 2014 or 2013. I thought it was just a nice thing to do to have lunch with the curator of the Gage Gallery, which is this uh, Roosevelt's premier photography gallery downtown. And I had known Art Shea's work because of those celebrity photographs of Elizabeth Taylor, Marlon Brando, and perhaps his most famous photograph is the one, the controversial one of Simone de Beauvoir's behind, bare behind. And I also knew about Art Shea because he had published a book of photographs where he and Nelson Algren had uh, roamed around Chicago in the late 40s and early 50s. But what I didn't know is that he had this voluminous archive in his home of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of photographs that had remained unpublished. Many of these were stories he was working on, but many, many more were actually things he just found interesting as he wandered the streets of Chicago looking for a story or perhaps on a story. He took these amazing photographs documenting Chicago's urban history. And so that's how the original idea for the book came about. But before it was a book, it was actually um, a gallery show that happened in 2015 in the Gage Gallery in downtown Chicago that featured over 300 photographs of Art Shea's documentation of social movements and street life in Chicago. And that gallery show was so successful that it caught the eye of uh, my editor at University of Chicago Press, Tim Minnell. And we walked through it together on a very quiet day in the gallery. And that convinced him it absolutely had to be further developed into a book. So the book project took off after that. And what's interesting about the book project is that it allowed me to expand the textual portion of trying to contextualize and think about these photographs historically that the exhibit could only do to a limited extent. You know, it became this really interesting project by accident where I was learning on the fly and being mentored by people who are really steeped in the history of photography about how to use photographs as historical sources, but also how to read photographs more generally. And then it became this sort of hybrid project where it was you know, designed to be equal parts history and equal parts photography, which, is, which was a challenging process because uh, the two don't often get combined in this way. And there were a few models to look for in terms of thinking about how to do this narrative and photography project. But it was super rewarding doing it, and it opened up all kinds of new dimensions for me about post-war Chicago urban history, about social movements, about African-American history, about the history of working-class people in the city, cultural production, etc. And one thing you, you try to make very clear is that it's not a book about Shea, so obviously his his photographs define the book, but it's not 
biographical, at least not in any conventional sense. How challenging was it to to try and build out this bigger, ambitious history of post-war Chicago while relying so heavily on the work of an individual artist? Yeah, so I think what helped me so much is that I had already been at work on a book project that had already sort of spawned a couple of articles about late 1960s Chicago and working with the Black Metropolis Research Consortium of archivists and scholars also led me to have a deep knowledge of the archives around the city that I'd been in and out of for some of those articles, but also for the Encyclopedia of Chicago, which I had worked on a decade before, as well as my first book, which had a Chicago component to it. So I came in with a deep knowledge of different sources so that I didn't have to just rely on Art Shea's photography archive to dictate the history to me. But at the same time, what was so refreshing and illuminating about going into his home archive and Erica de Glopper, his assistant, giving me real freedom to explore. And also, you know, she has made organization out of a total mess of that archive, which, you know, allowed me to see things differently than I had. Some of my assumptions based on other archival material fell by the wayside and things that I didn't even know existed because I had thought about my archival research in a particular way came to the forefront. It was about combining that knowledge with my previous knowledge that I think really helped develop this project. And I should also say that Art Shea was really supportive in his own way and giving me the freedom to interpret his photographs. He never said to me when I would unearth a roll or some negatives or a print from his basement archives, oh, this was this, and here's how you should interpret, and here's what I was trying to say with this photo. He never did that. He would sometimes provide an amusing story about the photo or some more details about it that you know I would never have known. But it wasn't. this wasn't a project about relying on Art Shea to interpret his work for me. Um, and he gave me the freedom as a historian to interpret that work to, and to contextualize it, which was really nice given that there was never a tension between Art Shea demanding that I write more of a biographical account of him. He realized that this book in some ways was an academic book, and he was really happy to have something come out on University of Chicago Press that took his work seriously in a historical way. We'll get into the photos as, as, as we go. You know, it really is this, this amazingly rich archive. Were there any images that you, you couldn't get into the book or, or was there anything that you felt absolutely had to be in the book? Yeah, um, I would say that in the process of researching the gallery show, as well as the book project that came after, I might have looked at a couple hundred thousand images. So. There are so many images that are not in the book that I still find fascinating. You know, I was only looking for Chicago photos and photos of street life in Chicago in particular. Arche has archives of sports photographs, stuff he did when he, he went out of town to other places on assignment that I didn't even look at, right? So it's just an incredible archive. It's so rich. And there are photos that I wish could have been in the book, but I really had to try to limit myself and 
the press and my editor were actually quite amenable to the idea that, you know, I'm going to do this book that has 250 images in it, and it's going to be done on a very high quality printing. And the other demand was that it be affordable. So 250 images, I think, is in some ways the limit to what I could do with this book and still have these short, um, sharp chapters where I discuss the history and subtly kind of reshape the narrative of post-war Chicago urban history in the process. So like just one example of an image I didn't put in the book, there is an image of a police officer, and this of course is really relevant to the present moment, um, driving by in a car, 1969, 1970, and he's holding up a swastika flag inside the car. I couldn't figure out exactly what was going on in that photo, so I didn't want to misinterpret it and use it in the book in a way that was inappropriate. So there are some photos like that where I could never quite date it, never quite figure out the context that didn't go into the book. I wanted to be sure that everything that went into the book was not only a spectacular photo or documented something significant, but also that I could figure out the date, the context, and the place. And you make quite a conscious decision, it seems, to to not have annotations on any of the images in the body of the texts. Was that part of this effort to try and synergize the history and the images? Yeah, I mean, I know that some people, for sure, that at least a couple people have objected to this. I understand that, that certain people, when they bought, when they think of a photography book, they want a book that they can put out on their coffee table, and they want to flip through the images in a casual way, and they want the captions right there under each image. That's not this book, however. This book could be a coffee table book. But it challenges you to read the text alongside the photographs. All of the images are listed and specified in the back of the book. So you, all you need to do is flip to the back for the particular caption or, you know, person in the image, etc. But, you know, I, I really think that this hybrid idea of photography and history only works if the two things have equal footing. And so I really didn't want to have a kind of Cliff Notes version where someone could just sort of flip through the book and look at captions and say, oh, okay, I understand these photos now. I think the reader really has to dig into it textually as well as visually. So we start the book in about 1948 when, when Shea moves to Chicago. And the first chapter, you're looking at this tension. So on the one hand, labor activism, civil rights activism is suggesting perhaps a more positive future for interclass interracial relations. But then at the, the same time, Shea is, is documenting a, a hardening color line and class line in post-war Chicago. How do, how do the images express that? And maybe you can give one or two examples of, of images that do that particularly well. Sure, right. Um, I mean, the, the first chapter is titled Democratic Dreams Deferred. And I really do think that out of the Depression era and World War II era, cities like Chicago 
had a kind of working class dynamism of social movements, of unionism, whose activists and participants really believed that the post-war world would be a world of greater egalitarianism and anti-racism. And, you know, they come, they hit a wall of conservatism and political cronyism and other activities in the post-war world of Chicago that defer those dreams and uh, scatter these activists, of course, most notably McCarthyism. And so there's a photograph of McCarthy that Shea took in the book where he's speaking in Chicago and Shea carefully aligns him underneath a series of chandeliers in a hotel ballroom so that it looks like he either has a halo over his head like an angel or as someone else explained, there's another interpretation, which it looks like he has a dunce cap on his head. And that is coupled with a photograph of people outside protesting McCarthy speaking in Chicago, you know, with signs that suggest that it's not just McCarthy, but it's McCarthyism that's destroying democratic culture in cities like Chicago. So, you know, organized labor is becoming more conservative as a result of this new Cold War developing. And of course, you know, the larger historiography covers that very well. But looking at the particular urban spaces where this is developing in a city, I think is useful. Uh, You know, the, the chapter starts off with a photograph of Muddy Waters and his wife, Geneva, sitting in the back of a club on the south side of Chicago. And that also indicates a new dynamic in Chicago, which is the second great migration of large numbers of African-Americans who are coming to settle not just on the south side of Chicago, but the west side of Chicago, and new cultural activity that's developing out of this era as well. You know, the color line is hardening, but there's also all kinds of new dynamic energy on the south side of Chicago, west side of Chicago in particular. and. You know, I wanted to make it clear that there wasn't determined outcome for this battle of the post-war world. And for a while, it looked like places like Chicago were moving into a more democratic realm. But of course, by the mid-1950s, it became clear that a lot of that activity had been shut down by state-level repression. And as Chapter 2 details, a new level of police scrutiny and a kind of rounding up of any democratic street protest or troublemaking in the city of Chicago. So, you know, the first chapter is one where I wanted to leave it open that there were different routes of possibility for the post-war city. And one came about through particular efforts by Chicago's political machine, through police and criminal justice system, through a larger atmosphere of Cold War hysteria that drove democratic protest movements into a much more narrow field, at least for a while, and contain those movements. And one of the, the things that this chapter, but also the book as a whole, does really well is is use this visual narrative to try and complicate these often linear and simplistic narratives we have of, of post-war politics and uh, race relations, uh, labor relations in Chicago. So you you have images of, of the Trumbull Park integration. Could you say for some audience members who maybe aren't familiar, can you say a little bit about Trumbull Park and, and the significance of the images that you use here? 
Sure, yeah. So Trumbull Park perhaps is the most famous and infamous case of the racial battles over public housing in the post-war era. Trumbull Park was a project uh, that came about, a public housing project that came about after World War II. It had been designed as largely a white housing project in a southeast side uh, white neighborhood. But Betty Howard was a light-skinned African-American woman who applied at the Chicago Public Housing Office for housing and was admitted into the Trumbull Park project. And uh, as a result of that clerical error of not seeing that she was African-American and her husband was much darker skinned than she was, they um, integrated or desegregated the housing project. And then it became a national and international story where the focus was on the white residents of Trumbull Park really engaging in all kinds of terrorism, rock throwing, firework, shooting, physical violence, etc. And the police reaction was one to try to protect the few families that moved into the Trumbull Park housing project. But really, the, the police, you know, had much more in common, given the structure of policing at the time, with the neighborhood white residents. So in reality, what the police did is they kept the African-American families cordoned off and sort of prisoners in their own apartments and in their own neighborhood. And, you know, the story became a a story in Life magazine. Um, Shea published a full, beautiful color image of police officers sitting around a a fire late at night. And then in the background, you can see an apprehensive African-American couple looking out the window um, wondering, you know, what's next? What What's the next form of harassment we're going to receive? And, you know, that's an important story. But what Shay also did was stuck around in the neighborhood and took pictures of more innocent things happening, like police officers playing baseball with neighborhood children out of boredom during the day, which kind of showed that solidarity between officers who at this point were largely picked from their own neighborhoods to patrol those neighborhoods and the neighborhood residents. And, you know, also I use new archives for the Trumbull Park story. Uh, I went to the American Friends Services Committee headquarters in Philadelphia and found voluminous archives of uh, weekly reports on Trumbull Park from people who lived there or visited there. And that showed me another side to the story too, which is that a lot of the actual residents of the public housing project made peace with the idea that some African-American families lived there eventually, and in fact, formed around this white minister, a kind of anti-racist coalition. Whereas it was often people from the larger South Deering neighborhood who engaged in the kind of white supremacist activity that's more associated with Trumbull Park. So the idea here is to, um, you know, even if you're someone who's familiar with the Trumbull Park story as brilliantly told by the historian Arnold Hirsch and others, I wanted to bring a new dimension to this. And in some ways, the photography led me to unearth and sort of complicate the story of Trumbull Park and the story of public housing and race in Chicago. 
And one of the continuities throughout is, is Shay's ability to gain access or to gain the trust of, of people um, to provide access to certain environments. And chapter two, that comes through really clearly through his relationship, collaboration with Nelson Algren and the way in which Shay is able to access what you describe as hidden spaces to show aspects of the Chicago criminal justice system and then the police force that, that maybe weren't visible to, to a lot of the population. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think part of this is a product of Shay's personality, where he just tried to talk his way into whatever space he wanted to access or to photograph people who probably ordinarily would have shunned the idea of being photographed. You know, and certainly he also wasn't above, you know, acknowledging that the criminal justice system in 1950s and 1960s Chicago was corrupt. So sometimes it took a $5 bill or a form of flattery or a threat to do something that allowed him to get access to these spaces, spaces that today we could never probably access. A juvenile delinquent facility in downstate Illinois and Sheridan, you know, he got full access to that. And this facility had been a product of a huge scandal just before. So my guess is he got access because he promised to take photographs that were more flattering about how this place had been reformed. But of course, he took a number of photographs that showed just how horrible this place was in terms of detaining young men in particular. Yeah. And then he got access to the court system, the lineups, police lineups. Um, he even got access to the electric chair that was in the basement of the Cook County Jail. And, you know, I imagine Algren helped him. That friendship really helped where it was clear that they wanted to cross all of these lines, invisible lines of segregation in Chicago. And they wanted to explore all of the alleyways. They wanted to explore underneath the L tracks. They wanted to get into all of the various spaces that the boosters of Chicago didn't want anyone to see or to highlight which of course led to Algren writing the book Chicago City on the Make, which came out in the 50s, which is a brilliant poetic book about those contradictions in Chicago. And of course, it made him infamous in Chicago to the point where he left Chicago and became more famous in places like Paris than his own hometown, because so many people kind of despised him for revealing this aspect of Chicago and its urban culture. So Shea is, is very good at revealing or exposing these hidden truths, if you like. But you you note that he doesn't consider himself to be an activist. He really takes part in, in the conflicts or the struggles that he witnesses. But maybe that's most put to the test in, in chapter three, when you talk about white flight to the suburbs and um, Shea himself moves his family to the suburbs in the late 50s, and then he becomes embroiled in the little rock of housing in the north, uh, as, as it's described. Yeah, so for, for this particular um, chapter, Shay shot a lot of photographs, and it was first inspired by the idea that it was going to become a major Life magazine story. But then that story got put on hold and bumped for various reasons. And then the kind of dynamism of the story got taken out of, of it when, it, you know, the, the sort of battle over this 
potentially desegregated high-end housing project in the suburb of Deerfield went to court and got tied up in all kinds of court battles that were just not very flashy or exciting, right? And that's part of the story that is important to understand that, you know, there is a kind of suburban civility that tried to handle or prevent, I should say, desegregation that was different from a place like Trumbull Park, where people threw rocks and engaged in violence. Suburbanites were too civil for that, right? But at the same time, equally pernicious about keeping even very wealthy African Americans out of their suburban community. And so it did get personal for Shea. You know, he continued to take photographs for an unnamed life story that really never happened in the magazine. And so clearly it was more personal than it was for a story. And, you know, his own family was dealing with this. And he did side with the group who was for integration in Deerfield, um, the Deerfield Human Rights Group. But what's so remarkable to me about this story is probably not the very predictable outcome that suburban whites did not want racial integration in the 1950s, but that even the opposition the people that were for integration of a suburb like Deerfield, their their vision and their version of a victory would have been a token number of wealthy African-Americans moving into a particular housing project, which thinking about the larger scheme of things of what was happening in Chicago and its suburbs would have been like a teaspoon in the ocean, right? And so what it showed me is that and it, I think it, to a degree it showed Shea, even though he was on the side of the liberals in Deerfield, that there was a liberal kind of suburbanism that existed in post-war America that was very limited in its solutions to urban and in particular racial problems. And you know, so in some ways, even a victory in Deerfield would have been a very limited victory at best. And some of the images towards the the end of the chapter um, relate to a protest and a march that, that happens in Deerfield, and those were particularly interesting um, to me because they they so clearly track onto that visual iconography of, of the movement in the South, and it's a reminder that the civil rights is obviously a, a national issue. Right, and sort of the, Jim Crow in the North had its own lot racial logic to it, but certainly was just as widespread, particular in the 1950s. Those photographs are interesting, right, in that they're in 1963, I believe. And there, I also wanted to highlight the generational difference, that there was a group of young people, you know, the baby boom generation, who grew up with ideas told to them about equality and democracy in America, but then they came to realize that that was rhetoric only. And they challenged their elders in significant ways in places like Deerfield to live up to this promise. Uh, So even after the courts decide that Deerfield is allowed to rezone that housing project for a park district, they reject that, right? And they, they protest and they have a march and it doesn't result in anything initially, but Deerfield does become, you know, desegregated in a limited way by the late 1960s. And also, I should say, there's an interesting memory here in Deerfield. You know, since the book came out, I've been to the Deerfield Public Library and spoken to a lot of people in Deerfield. 
there's young people in Deerfield right now who are engaging in Black Lives Matter type protests. And I think they're about to rename that park for someone other than the park district commissioner, who is one of the people complicit in keeping African Americans out of Deerfield. So there's a young people's movement to sort of reckon with Deerfield's own white supremacist history and to finally sort of overcome that and, you know, restructure the city and and think about renaming the park. And so that's really gratifying that sort of the history in this book has helped prompt a new generation of people to not just forget about Deerfield's history, which had happened in the decades following the early 1960s, but actually to remember it in order to reckon with it. And chapters four and five, which are in many ways the meat of the project, is focusing on the, the heart of the 60s and these various interconnected protest and activist movements that are coalescing in Chicago. So, so you're talking about the student peace movement, women for peace, rent strikes, obviously ongoing civil rights activism. You see the school boycotts against Benjamin Willis and the Chicago public schools. In choosing images for this chapter, how challenging was it to, to find the balance between these interconnected stories that, that you're trying to tell? Right. Yeah. And to not give, you know, a small moment or a small group too many images that would lo- re- lead the reader to believe that they were more significant or more representative than something that was a much broader movement, right? That was a challenge. And The photographs, though, also really helped open up new ideas for me. I mean, I never would have known, for example, that Women for Peace had a significant presence in early 1960s Chicago in opposing the Cold War, opposing the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, these women were really shunned by Democrats, even liberal Democrats like Paul Douglas and others, you know, not just the Daily Machine in the city of Chicago. Um, because almost everyone was on board with this Cold War agenda, except these women, right? And so in some ways, they were like the precursor to the larger peace movement that developed among young people in the city of Chicago. So that's just one example of something I don't think I ever would have focused on had I not seen these images of downtown marches and protests contesting, you know, the fact that you had Nike missile sites on the lakeshore in Chicago or that there would be these military demonstrations where they would do mock amphibious landings with, you know, military with guns on Montrose Beach on the north side of Chicago. You know, those exercises weren't just for uh, some kind of celebration. They they were meant to in, inculcate fear in Chicagoans, not just in terms of fear of nuclear war from abroad, but Fear of protesting, fear of speaking out, of going against this larger Cold War narrow-minded mentality. So, you know, that's just one example. But, you know, also thinking about the Chicago Freedom Movement and recasting that story and understanding that the year Martin Luther King spent in Chicago with his national allies was not actually the peak or was not actually the most representative or um, largest protest movement that the city of Chicago saw in the 1960s. So that's part of the story, but it's not the story, right? And so that changes our understanding of the larger narrative of protest movements. And then finally, making sure that I didn't 
do what historians often do, which is to put protest movements in these containers, right? So the peace movement is over here. The civil rights movement is over there. The labor movement is over here. What was remarkable to me in looking especially at the 1960s photos of movements and moments in Chicago was just how interrelated these movements were. And that, in fact, Chicago had its own civil rights movement that was very uh, diverse and had a kind of convergence of issues by 1966. And so, you know, one of the failures I argue about King's role in 66 was that he came in with his allies and sort of still wanted to maintain those liberal alliances with Lyndon Johnson and the White House, with various labor unions, whereas the Chicago grassroots movement had already developed a strong critique against some of those forces. And King only really realized that after he left Chicago and then started engaging more in economic justice movements and started coming out against the Vietnam War, as well as allying with uh, Latinos. And that was another missed opportunity, I think, in 1966 that, you know, you had the Division Street riot of Puerto Ricans revolting against police brutality in the city of Chicago. You had uh, Mexican-American groups coming up in the city, but the movement of 66, or the national movement, was largely one of African-Americans. And so these protest movements, I think, are really interesting in trying to put them in conversation with each other, and to also figure out which ones had more impact um, than others. And sometimes the impacts were unanticipated. And sometimes, you know, like with the school boycott you mentioned, here you had this amazing moment where you have hundreds of thousands of Chicago school children boycotting school. Yet somehow that boycott movement was contained by the city of Chicago and the democratic machine. It didn't result in widespread changes. And it was actually only later that the community control movement and uh, elements of black power were able to more effectively intervene in the kinds of racism going on in Chicago's schools. And then you round out the book uh, with a focus on 68 and the unrest that, that follows the assassination of, of Dr. King in, in April, and then the clashes at the Democratic Convention later in the year. And one of the, the things that I thought was really interesting in the way that you used images in this chapter is there's so much emphasis on the conflict um, in, in 68 and the turmoil. Um, and what you, what you do is you have these images of, of turmoil and of conflict, but also you have images or moments of solidarity, of joy, of, of relaxation, you know, the, the moments in between um, that often get lost in, in these narratives of, of the riotous 60s. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, about the 68 convention, I was very lucky in that Shay photographed it differently than other journalists. And again, I think this is particular to Shay being a freelancer. He definitely was shooting for a story and to publish and get paid, but he also saw things outside of that traditional framework that he found interesting. And so he really was everywhere during those few days of the convention, got access to all kinds of spaces and, you know, at the expense of, um, you know, he, he got hit with a 
police baton and his I, one of his fingers broke and it was never the same as a result. And he got tear gassed, um, in fact, famously tear gassed with a group that included Allen Ginsberg and others. Um, and they rushed into a local motel to try to pour water on their eyes and try to see again, you know. And so Shay's depiction of the convention actually is a much wider lens. And so it, it led me to understand that I think there's a stereotype of Chicago 68 that it's all a bunch of white hippies that came to town or college students that had a kind of immature uh, politics that was anti-war. You know, some of that uh, myth, it, it existed in there. And, you know, so that photographers focused on the yippies, for example, um, and focused on the most extreme kinds of versions of people who came there. But if you look at the wider group of images, you see bikers, working class people, unionists in the crowd. You see a much more diverse crowd of African-Americans. Bobby Seale famously spoke during this convention period in the park. You know, and the Chicago Black Panthers hadn't even really formed yet when this happened. And, you know, this in some ways inspired their formation. Uh, you had a massive bus strike of um, African-American bus drivers walking out that's not depicted in the book, but it gives you a sense of the wider energy that was happening during this period. But then I also, you know, want to contest or compare that to other things that were happening in 68 and 69. And I try to make a strong argument that Chicago 68 certainly is an important event in the urban history of Chicago. And of course, in the world, right, when people saw the footage of police descending upon protesters in downtown Chicago, um, later became known as a police riot. But, you know, nobody died. And very few people actually were put in jail for long periods of time. There's very little evidence of anyone being tortured in jail. yet. Those things happened in relation to the African-American community in Chicago. And in particular, in 68 and 69, you get a huge expansion of the gang intelligence unit, which is a new unit that comes out of the Red Squad. The Red Squad was a secret police unit that goes back to the 1930s in Chicago. But by the 1960s, Daly is using and funding this Red Squad and the gang intelligence unit at alarming rates to basically quash any dissent against him and the political machine in the city of Chicago. And this results in uh, a lot of violence, police violence. Um, after the 68 assassination of Martin Luther King on the West side, you get a huge insurrection. Uh, African-Americans are rounded up in mass, whether they were participating or not. And many of them didn't actually get to see a judge, you know, just basic rights of habeas corpus or get, you know, figure out what they were charged with for weeks. Um, you get the overcrowding of Chicago's city jails. And by now the Chicago criminal justice system has increasingly become racialized so that it's clear that while African-Americans are overwhelmingly represented compared to their percentage of the population. And you get outright assassination and murder. Um, Chicago declares, declares a war on gangs in the late 1960. Many, many of these gangs are actually working with members of civil rights groups and black power groups. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that the gang members that are most interested in 
things like, you know, confronting uh, systematic racism in the building trades and getting jobs for young black men are the ones that the police are focusing on. The most famous, of course, of these situations was the brutal assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark on the West Side Black Panther Party office in December 1969. But there were so many more cases that um, didn't get as much notoriety that suggested a much wider pattern of incarceration, um, racialized violence, and repression that shut down this convergence of social movements that really hit its peak in 1968 and 1969 in Chicago and had a relationship to the Democratic 68 protest during that convention, but certainly was much more widespread and dynamic than anything that had occurred during that more famous moment where the convention was held in Chicago. And you, you've already mentioned Black Lives Matter a few times, and the, the theme of police brutality is one that runs throughout the book, and, and particularly in, in the final chapter. And what in particular might photographs give us as a, as a historical record compared to a, to a more conventional historical account? Right. So in doing this book, what was very helpful is that there's a younger generation of historians of Chicago, who I've been in conversation with for years now. You know, you mentioned Simon Balto. Uh, Simon was actually a student of mine at Roosevelt before he went on to getting a PhD in you know Wisconsin and writing his incredible book on the, the long history of Chicago's police department in relation to the African American community. So there's an ongoing conversation that's been happening for over a decade. But, you know, also scholars like Liz, Liz Todd Breland, who just wrote this brilliant book about race in the Chicago public schools. And, you know, Melanie Newport, who's in the middle of finishing a book about Cook County Jail. You know, all of these, all of this sort of newer historiography was so important in writing this book. And, you know, because this book tries to give a sharp, a summary of a lot of very deep and complicated history so that a person who's not familiar with any of this history and maybe is just interested in the photographs can get hooked on understanding more about the deep history of Chicago in all of its complexity. So, you know, conversations with those people and their scholarship is cited in the book too. So you've got like that scholarship plus new archival research and then you have the photographs. And I think the photographs can represent a new dimension. And hopefully people who read my book will then be so interested and so drawn in by the photographs and the text that they then go and read more about these specific topics and, you know, look to the larger historiography. And, you know, overall, I would say this: what, what this historiography does is really speaks to the present moment in significant ways. If we think about what's happening now in the streets of urban America, Black Lives Matter, debates about policing, and also more generally in the middle of a pandemic, how do you engage in democratic protest? How do you combat you know, increasing forms of fascism um, that are restricting democracy. And th I think this book, because it's a synthetic revisionist account of 
Chicago in these years can really be helpful as a tool to thinking about that. Certainly, there's no direct comparisons. And, you know, the book makes very clear that there's no mechanical way to do street level direct action protest. But there's so many different models in this book. And one thing I wanted to make sure I did, I accomplished in this book is to, to make clear that like Nelson Algren, you know, Chicago is not a morality tale. There's not one group that is just wholly good and another group that is wholly evil. It's more complicated than that. And of course, there are troublemakers who are protesting for democracy and those who are trying to shut it down. But the uh, areas of sort of gray between those two groups, I think, is really important to understand. You've been listening to New Books in American Studies, part of the New Books Network. For Eric Gelman, I'm James West, and we hope that you'll tune in again soon. Goodbye.